Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. An Erio's original. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out Who's to blame? They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith. And I am The Alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we'll be talking about the Hillsborough Stadium disaster. As is the case with many of our episodes, this is a difficult subject, so listener discretion is advised. Here's what you need to know. Welcome to Hillsborough, the sun has come out to greet you, and referee Ray Lewis is indicating to the teams that... Uh, They will be playing in the directions in which they're set at the moment. Liverpool. On April 15, 1989, more than 50,000 soccer fans, aka football fans, gathered to watch a semi-final match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, England. The cost of a standing room ticket was six pounds, and anyone who got their hands on one was considered lucky. 
on that warm and sunny Saturday afternoon at noon, the stadium opened its grounds for the 3 p.m. match, and by 2 o'clock, the grounds were starting to fill up. Liverpool supporters were allocated the north and west end entrances, Leppings Lane, with just 10 turnstiles providing access to 9,700 seats in the north stand. But by 2.15, only 12,000 fans had been able to enter the stadium as opposed to the 20,000 that by this time had entered the corresponding semi-final game the previous year. The entrance area by the North End turnstiles was experiencing extreme bottlenecking. By 2.45 p.m., the crowd inside and outside the turnstiles had reached 5,000. Many people were sweating and short of breath. It became clear that not all the fans would be able to pass through the turnstiles before 3 p.m. In order to relieve the bottleneck of Liverpool fans trying to enter the venue before kickoff, police opened an exit gate and people rushed to get inside. In just five minutes, 2,000 fans passed through. The majority made their way to the central pens of the Leppings Lane end. It quickly became obvious to other spectators that pens three and four were excessively full, while the outer pens still had space with patches of concrete visible. More than 3,000 fans were funneled into a standing room only area with a safe capacity of just 1,600. This influx caused severe crushing in the pens. Fans began climbing over side fences into the relatively less packed pens to escape. At 3 p.m., the match began. Liverpool's goalkeeper could hear fans from behind him pleading for help as the situation worsened. The police at first attempted to stop fans from spilling out of the pens, some believing they were trying to invade the field. At approximately 3.05 p.m., a shot from Liverpool's Peter Beardsley hit the bar. At the same time, a crush barrier in pen three gave way, causing people to fall on top of each other. The crushing was happening right in front of fans sitting in other parts of the stadium, as well as being watched on television. At 3.06 p.m., a referee stopped the game. At this point, fans were climbing the fence in an effort to escape the crush, and a small gate in the pen onto the field had been forced open. Some fans escaped through that gate, as others continued to climb over the fencing as people were spilling onto the field. Other fans inside were pulled out of the pens by fans on the stands above the pens. Those still trapped were being crushed. But we have chaos with fans on the field, I'm afraid to say. Now, just when uh, Liverpool supporters have had the inkling of a chance to get back into Europe, we've got problems because the police have been guiding spectators out of the end, the way to my left-hand side, and some of those spectators have spilled onto the field and one or two of them look rather the worse for drink, but clearly something has gone badly wrong at that end of the ground where the Liverpool supporters are. The game has been stopped, nothing is happening, the players are moving towards the centre circle, and the police are trying to get control of this situation once more. In the midst of the chaos, the St. John Ambulance staff performed CPR to the injured on the field, while many uninjured fans assisted the injured and tore down advertising signs to use as stretchers. In total, 96 people lost their lives and 766 were injured. Of the 96 people who died, only 14 were admitted to the hospital. Most of the victims trapped in the pens were packed so tightly that they died of compressive asphyxia while standing. 
The worst disaster in British sporting history happened at the start of the FA Cup semi-final between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. Police opened a 16-foot wide gate to relieve what they called the life-threatening pressure of fans outside the ground. And 3,000 of those fans poured onto a terrace, crushing those already there. The Football Association has already launched an inquiry. The government has ordered an urgent report. Hooliganism played no direct part in the disaster at Sheffield. Mismanagement will be the common denominator in the many ingredients to be identified at the inquiry. But there was bad humour and aggression outside the ground between police and Liverpool fans, hundreds of whom had gathered without tickets, angry that 6,000 fewer tickets had been allocated to Liverpool than to Nottingham. The gate was opened at police direction. I am not aware of any connection between the opening of the gate and the surge on the terrace. Whichever Liverpool fans may have made some contribution to it, they're unlikely to have been among those who died. For the dead had been among the first to enter the enclosure, to stake their place at the wire fence and eventually to be crushed to death against it. Fun facts, a.k.a. death stats. It took nearly 30 minutes for organizers to call for doctors and nurses via the public address system. 95 people died at or shortly after the disaster, but the 96th person died in 1993 when he was taken off life support. Of those who died, 37 were teenagers, and of the 96, 89 were male and 7 were female. Three pairs of brothers, one pair of sisters, and one father and son died together. 26 of the dead were parents. Victims came from all walks of life, working class, middle class, wealthy, hard up, from Liverpool, the Midlands, London, and everywhere around the UK. Some of the injured were permanently disabled after the day's events. Thousands were left traumatized by what they saw. Mr. Byrne also witnessed the Heisel Stadium tragedy at first hand. He said there was total panic today. People were shouting for help. They were shouting to the front to open the gates to let them be dragged out. But it seemed slow on opening the gates to get the people out because you could see that it wasn't an ordinary crush. It was, there was something wrong. So here we are. With us today are producer Amanda Lund. Hello, everyone. And fact checker Chris Smith. And we're also very lucky to have our special guest with us today, Patrick Adler, who's an academic of city planning. Hello. <laughs> well, well, yeah, and, and that's true. <laughs> well, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. You know, having smart friends pays off sometimes for me. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Pat, tell us a little bit about what you do. So I'm um, a multidisciplinary academic. I uh, am a researcher for the University of Toronto. I research urban economics and um, urban planning issues. And then I do some teaching here in L.A. And you said that you actually studied football or soccer. You know, one of the themes of my research is how like people consume in cities. Mm -hmm. So consumption patterns in cities. And we did an analysis of the uh, cities that were adopting MLS teams in the United States. And it was kind of the most, I guess, in Hillary Clinton's terms, like the least deplorable cities, like, so it's the most kind of blue cities, um, cosmopolitan cities. And um, basically, the profile of a person in the United States who follows soccer is like kind of worldly and cosmopolitan and the profile of someone in England would be more like traditional working class. So 
interesting. interesting. That is interesting. So we view soccer as a, a higher... It's uh, a highbrow sport. Highbrow sport. Yeah. <laughs> right. I Chris, mean, the, the, you, you used to play soccer when you were a kid. I did, with a monocle in my eye. <laughs> <laughs> and a top hat. And a top hat, yes, in my tuxedo, my soccer tuxedo. <laughs> but you had to have a chin strap for the top hat to keep it on while you ran. <laughs> and it was really hard to do headers. <laughs> That's right. Um, but the in America, the uh, working class, uh, we, we're a football nation. Like, mm-hmm. football is That's right. a mega... A giant. So I have to say, just learning about this particular tragedy, I've had to stop listening to podcasts and stop watching a ton of documentaries because my anxiety levels are so high while learning about this. I can't imagine what it must have been like to been in this unorganized um, situation. So, I mean, I think we just can dive right in and, and start putting people up on the board. <laughs> And uh, off the bat, I mean, we need to talk about the South Yorkshire police. According to an article on BBC, in the aftermath, the police lied about the fans being drunk. Four days after the disaster, the Sun newspaper published its now infamous front page under the headline, The Truth, quote unquote, this is the truth, claiming some fans had, quote, picked the pockets of victims and had urinated on on a woman police officer who was trying to help the dying. Other regional and national newspapers published similar, similar allegations, although less prominently. This was not true. Subsequent investigations would go on to dispel this drunken hooligan fan myth. So right away, the police got defensive and just started victim blaming. Duckinfield, who was the superintendent of the police chief, first thing he did was start victim blaming, Mm -hmm. which is, to me, that's a red flag, Mm -hmm. right? They say if you point one finger at (laughs) at somebody, you're usually pointing three fingers at yourself. That's right. And one one finger up at God? And one finger (laughs) up at God. Yeah, if you have the sort of like... If your thumb is, is up. But I guess like just in terms of the police, they don't come off as... Great. We were also watching another documentary where they were saying they immediately started asking if the people involved were drunk or drinking that day. So they were already kind of interested in learning about how can this not be made to be my fault? Right. It's the hooligans, basically, hooligan blaming. Hillsborough Stadium uh, Disaster Inquiry Report is the report of an inquiry which was overseen by Lord Justice Taylor and was published in January of 1990. The Taylor report found that the main reason for the disaster was the failure of police control. Now, there had been a recent personnel change, and this is according to Wiki Police. Or wiki police, wiki. <laughs> Does Wikipedia? <laughs> Does Wikipedia uh, have police? Like, because pe- you can put whatever you want on Wikipedia, right? Do they have? We're all the wiki police. Are we? Yeah. It, that's right. It's a group. It's, like, it's like anarcho-capitalism. Oh, cool. <laughs> Which is something you can find out on Wikipedia. <laughs> So, according to Wiki Police, <laughs> us, aka us. us, the police presence at the previous year's FA Cup semifinal, also between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest, and also at Hillsborough Stadium, had been overseen by Chief Superintendent Brian L. Mole. Now, Mole had supervised numerous police deployments at the stadium in the past. 
But in October of 1988, probationary PC in Mole's F Division, so another like a, a younger cop, was handcuffed, photographed, and stripped by fellow officers in a fake robbery as a hazing prank. Mm. Okay, mm. so this happened. So these police are bad guys, like basically is what you're no, saying. No, no. What I'm saying is, uh, uh, aside from, so Mole's been the one who's running the stadium and for years has overseen the, the police activity in the stadium. Mm-hmm. Now, a side incident, this young cop gets hazed by these other cops mm-hmm. and this gets reported. And the four officers that do this are resign, and then seven were disciplined over the incident. Chief Superintendent Mole himself was to be transferred to Barnsley Division for career development reasons, quote. That, that's what they said. Mm. But what essentially was happening, according to this 30 for 30 doc on the, on the Hillsborough disaster, which I highly recommend, Mole was being transferred even though he didn't have any knowledge of the prank prior to the incident. He was said to have been an actually effective superintendent. Mm. But this situation just happened to happen in October of 88. And so he was being transferred. That's when that's where Duckenfield comes in. He's a newbie, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, like a fresh, fresh duckling. The transfer was to be done with immediate effect on Mar- March 27, 1989. Again, this happens April 15th. Meanwhile, Hillsborough has ex- was accepted as the FA Cup semifinal venue on March 20th. And the first planning meeting for the semifinal took place on March 22nd and was attended by the newly promoted chief superintendent, David Duckenfield, not by Mole, because Mm. Mole's on his way out. Right. No known minutes exist of the meeting, although Mole could have been assigned the semifinals match planning despite his transfer. That was not done. This left planning for the semifinal match to Duckenfield, who had never commanded a sellout football match before and who had, quote, very little, if any, training or personal experience on how to do so. There's even some footage uh, saying that he didn't know who the teams were. He didn't really have any knowledge of actual football, much less how to run a stadium that was sold out. So it's kind of like having any of us do it. That's like, <laughs> like literally, yeah. Of experience, <laughs> yeah. Correct. Although, experience. honestly, you and Rebecca, I think, would do a better job. Oh, wow. <laughs> just from, I just met you. But... I know, that's so nice. <laughs> there are two visiting teams. So yeah. something you need to know about this particular yes. cup is that they would have two visiting teams play in what is essentially a neutral a neutral pitch or field or whatever or yeah. a stadium. Yes, you're right. All of the cities that um, they, the, the people were coming from, the fans were coming from, were about an hour to an hour and a half uh, commute. Mm-hmm. Another huge failure by police, which we're, we've put the police up on the board. Yeah, so far uh, up on the board, South Yorkshire Police and I put Duckenfield up there. Yeah, absolutely. He definitely needs to go up there. And now we're going to talk to Phil Scratton, author of Hillsborough, The Truth, and Professor Emeritus in the School of Law at Queen's University in Belfast about the South Yorkshire Police Department. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us about this. My question really is, would you place the blame more on Duckenfield himself or the South Yorkshire Police as a whole? I think it's important to really understand the complexity of Duckenfield's appointment as the match commander on the day. He had only policed, been in charge of policing two previous matches, games, at that stadium. And he was inexperienced. In the film Hillsborough, 
we demonstrate the reason, very clear reason, why he was given so little lead-in time. There had been a scandal within the South Yorkshire Police Force and his predecessor, who had experience of uh, being match commander at Hillsborough, was removed from the job. Duckenfield was parachuted in, but he had an experienced team around him. And when he was caught in the headlights in the police control box, and he could see that there was a crowd outside that was becoming quite dangerous, when he made that decision to open the gate, you would have expected his senior officers, who had a long experience of policing that stadium, would have intervened, and they didn't. So the the issue is that whilst he, of course, was responsible for the decision to open the gates, while, of course, he was responsible for the lie that he immediately told that went all around the world, there were others, the match, not only the match commander, the ground commander, the commander outside the ground, all of those senior officers who had experience of policing Hillsborough and who contributed through their own negligence and neglect to the situation, the escalation of the, the situation. So, yes, Duckenfield had to be held responsible for his own failings. But there were others who failed very much so as well on the day. You can hear the full interview on Thursday's Aftermath episode. Okay, back to it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Alarmist. Another huge failure by police was, um, according to BBC, in this interim report on August 4th, 1989, after the disaster, Lord Justice Taylor wrote that the key element of police control at fault was the failure to close off the tunnel mm. leading to pens three and four once gate C had been opened. Gate C was the entrance gate. He went on to criticize police for their failure to handle the buildup of fans outside the ground properly and their slow reaction to the unfolding disaster. Now, let's take a moment to kind of like Talk about how this is all happening. My dissertation is also on music festivals. So it's a similar sort of thing, but usually with crowd control at sporting events and music festivals, uh, you want to kind of manage the crowd and like distribute the crowd across multiple areas so that there's not this like psychic pressure on this one point where everyone really wants to get in. And that, Right. As it was described to me, that's exactly what happened. Like the police were just there, and there's a lot of like angry Liverpoolians, yeah, sure, staring down <laughs> at them. And so I, th- I think the kind of social pressure, uh, based on my reading, was like a big factor. Where like it's like th- tens of, or thousands of people, thousands of people, thousands. yeah, thousands, yes. thousands of people against a few police officers. I think that's a <laughs> so- tough call. I, for me also, it's it's a timing thing, right? So mm. there were there were a lot of factors that led to this exact thing, which were um, the game was about to start mm-hmm. at three o'clock. The groups are outside and they're they're looking at their watches and mm. they're saying, "We got to get in." The crowd, you know, the, the match is about to start. Now this gate C that they're talking about. Um, there's pressure that's building up into these tunnels and people as people are trying to force their way in. And the police are radioing back to Duckenfield saying, we got to open up gate C and let people in because because the crowds outside are really getting crushed inside and outside. So Duckenfield, like, they, they go back and forth. And finally, uh, Duckenfield, field says okay open up gate c now once gate c is open two thousand people come in in a matter of like five minutes Mm -hmm. and there weren't any signs distributing the crowds to go to the uh the outside pens people just went right in they saw the tunnel and they walked straight down because those were the two pens once the pens three and four were full they should have closed the tunnel and not allowed more people to go in there. And by pens, I don't really know what that means. Does that mean just the area in the like the bleacher seats or what are pens? So pens are standing room only sections that are right by the field. So what it is, okay. is it's, it's just what it is. It's like a pen or it's like basically imagine cages lined up next to each other that are actually meant to prevent going from one cage to another. Why this particular game? Why did this happen on this particular game? Was there a reason just that there were so many people or what happened was that because of of uh and and we'll come back to Duckenfield because there's a few things that I want to say about how he acted afterwards. Um but we can jump into this um uh hooligan idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So hooliganism, according to Wikipedia, is disorderly, violent, or destructive behavior perpetrated by spectators at football events. It normally involves conflict between gangs. Certain clubs have long-standing rivalries with other clubs, and hooliganism is associated with the matches between them. According to uh, Hillsborough Untold, in the 1980s, hooliganism at football matches was frequent. It was ugly, and it was dangerous. 39 Juventus fans, I I think that's a a team, uh, had been killed at the Hazel Stadium in Belgium just four years before the Hillsborough disaster. It provoked sanctions against English football, with all of the teams banished from European competition for the remainder of the decade. And then what they started doing was segregating fans. So it, the Liverpool fans were were told to come to the north and the west end oh. and the and the Nottingham Forest fans were told to go to the south and east. The Liverpool fans were told to go through this particular area that had 10 turnstiles. So this is 10 turnstiles for 9,700 mm. people. So was it mostly the Liverpool fans who got trampled? It was only the Liverpool (gasps) fans. Oh, my God. That ratio is just as bad as the five bathrooms to 5,000 people on the poop cruise. (laughs) Well, we just did the carnival (laughs) poop cruise. Someone was saying that it had to be uh, 20, something like 27 people per minute had to go through the turnstiles in order to get there on time. And then the, 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 the police start saying, oh, it's because people were late. Oh, it's because people were drunk. drunk. But really, it was that they couldn't get through these turnstiles quick enough. People outside, they don't know what's happening inside, right? They don't know that there's crushing happening. All they're thinking is, I need to get in before yep. the game. G- push, push, push. Like, let's go, let's go, let's go. What's the holdup? So, Pat, as someone who knows a little bit about this, is there some sort of, like, oversight committee who helps with the safety when you're making these sorts of decisions or would it all be up to the people who own the stadium 1989 is a little ways away in terms of like lawsuits around these things and insurance policies it's like the the kind of like liability side of like mass events has gotten a lot more sophisticated Mm -hmm. and that's pushed a lot of like uh, rationalization of how how these things get managed. Um, so I think in a modern context, first of all, the deme- the like local stadium wouldn't have that much control. There would be some corporation with experience executing these events, and they would be in charge. And I'm not. I mean, maybe I'm describing something that's not even how they do it now at uh-huh. the FA Cup. But I'm pretty sure there's some kind of more specialization. So you're not sort of relying on local police forces or, um, or you know, local organizers to do everything r- right. You're relying on specialists who go from stadium to stadium and, right. and have protocols in place. But that was not the case, you're saying, in 1989. I mean, it was just a much less, like, I, I think we can, we can be rightfully scared about how, like, corporatized everything has become. But part of the, like, silver lining there is that, like, a company like Live Nation, which handles a lot of music festivals or live events, is really smart at crowd control. And they've got um, experience doing it, and they also have procedures that sort of work. Um, so Because they can take on the liability? Is that what you're saying? Or- well, so, well so, so why are they so smart? Because they don't want to get sued. Right. So it starts with the liability. But, right. But 
but the kind of liability puts this puts the conditions in place where they're going to right. behave yeah. a little bit better. And they're also competent. They know they yeah. probably have like tons of people helping them figure out the best way to, to do this. So who else can we so, throw up on the board? Well, I was just going to say maybe <laughs> maybe we can blame <laughs> no corporate daddies. No. <laughs> It's going to be great for my reputation. <laughs> I would say nor, nor Chris corporate says no corporate mommies, daddies. Because a mommy would also mm, be protect. really good yeah. at, at, so at coordinating. A, a lack of corporate mommies. <laughs> we're, 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 it, it's hard, though, because this is like we're getting in a... T- you can't really do the time machine thing where you're like, if only they had had right. something that didn't exist mm-hmm. back then. But were you well, leaning... But but this is not the first time that this sort of thing had happened at the stadium. So so, but then I think no. that should we should put the people running the stadium on yes. the board, right? And are you wanting to also put hooligans on the board? <laughs> I think we should. I we mean, have to. Well, here's the thing: hooliganism. We need to put up on the board just because that was what was uh, where the blame was placed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can all agree now, uh, what has it been, almost 30 years later, that was not what actually happened. You know, let's just put it up there. So and, hooligans, and we'll they took further. a lot of the blame early on is what you're saying. Well, and now, it was part and, of the and, myth. And, right. And so, but, but let's put them on there for now because, you know, I feel like while the court of public opinion has made their determination, the alarmist people yeah. need to make our own. <laughs> That's <determination>. true. <laughs> and they, that is the reason they decided to separate the people from Liverpool from the right. Nottingham yes. group. So yes. past bad yeah. behavior. Or, or put up these pens. Yeah. yeah. So past, b- past bad behavior. The, yeah. So past yeah. hooliganism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we have hooliganism up on the board now. And I want to talk about the stadium's design mm. and the designers. Uh, the turnstiles, they were said to be inadequate to process the crowd safely, and the, the rate of entry was insufficient, as we said, uh, to prevent dangerous buildup outside the ground. Implementing the pens as security measures meant that for many, there was no escape from the, from the crush. The pens' officially combined capacity was 2,200. It was later discovered that this should have uh, been reduced to 1,600, as crush barriers installed three years earlier did not meet official sta- safety standards. Mm. Do we have a name for the stadium owners? Uh, well, we could uh, put or- the uh, stadium administration, uh, which was uh, Sheffield Wednesday Football Club. Or the designers. Were pens outlawed after this? Yeah, they, after yes. this, they said that everyone needed a seat. Terrible. Okay, I'm going to do a little research, get a name of a designer, or I'm going to get that. Well, uh, there was Archibald L- Leet. L-I-E-T-C-H. He's um, uh, Britain's foremost football architect. In in total, he was commissioned to design part or all of more than 20 stadiums in the UK mm-hmm. and Ireland. But this was between 1899 and 1939. And he was the one who designed the stadium. Mm. When were the pens added, I wonder? Like recently, right? They, the, okay. the pens were added a- a- after 19, after the incident in Belgium. So I'm reluctant to blame... Archie, because that's why, yeah. There's no, yeah. For me, it's more the administration. Let's talk a little bit about that. This isn't the first incident that happens in the stadium, according to Wikipedia. A crush occurred at the Leppings Lane end of the ground during the 1981 semifinal between Tottenham Hotspur and Wolverhampton Wanderers. After hundreds more spectators were permitted 
to enter the terrace than could safely be accommodated, resulting in 38 injuries, including broken arms, legs, and ribs. Police believe that there had been a real chance of fatalities had swift action not been taken and recommended that uh, the club reduce its capacity. But the incident nonetheless prompted Sheffield Wednesday to alter the layout at the Leppings Lane end, dividing the terrace into three separate pens to restrict sideways movement. So, so now, now, not only could you were you not able to go onto the fields, but now you you were in, encased. This 1981 change and other later changes to the stadium invalidated the stadium's safety certificate. The safety certificate was never renewed, and the stated capacity of the stadium was never changed. I have something for us here, I think. I just found this article. The roots of football hooliganism with the increasing frequency of such incidents, meaning incidents of hooliganism in the 1970s, the Minister for Sport recommended that all grounds should be divided into manageable pens in order to assist with crowd control. Who's the mini- who was the Minister of Sport? I don't know. Ooh, that sounds like a fact checker job. Yes. <laughs> so in October of 1970, the FA advised all league clubs. So right now we have... Uh, Duck and Field, South Yorkshire Police, No Corporate Mommies, Past Hooliganism, and Hillsborough Stadium Administration. We can uh, maybe talk about Graham Kelly. Graham Kelly is the Football Association Chief Executive. So mm. he is the guy who's in charge and uh, of, of the stadium. And according to an article I found on, uh, in, on The Independent, the former FA Chief executive Graham Kelly's initial draft report about the disaster written two days afterwards. And if you read it, you will find no sign within its six pages that he was looking to investigate how the venue, which did not even have a safety certificate, had been chosen. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So he's the one who's in charge of finding a stadium for these semifinal events. Yeah, throw him on the board, Graham Kelly. Graham Kelly. I mean, these things, these site selection things, whether it's the Olympics or, you know, where is some big company going to go? I'm not, hey, not to cast any more aspersions than this guy already deserves. They are fraught with corruption. Okay. Oh. Anytime someone is in charge, has, has power to decide where something goes, there's the opportunity for um, bribery. And who knows? So let's put Graham Kelly up on the board. Kelly's up. I also have, we have a little bit of a um, issue here because uh, there was the Minister of Sport. There was a change in the Minister of Sport in 1970. Wow, okay. (laughs) It was Dennis Howell uh, ushered in 1970, and then uh, Eldon Griffiths took over. So I'm not sure which of these guys came up with a pen idea, but I'm going to kind of dig a little bit more. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) Who invented the pen as an idea? I mean, Is that what we're trying to understand? And isn't it also like who or like how did we come to treat other human beings as animals to go in pens? It's a great question. How did we get to this? Okay, I have a few kind of off the wall ideas. Me too. Okay. <laughs> let's let's, I mean, let's listen. Okay, so I've got like the sanctity of soccer. Mm. Okay. So it's like we got to start this thing on this time. This is really important. So that's like the the organizers. Yes. Mm. And that goes back to Duckenfield because they they asked him to uh, push back the start and he had the power <gasps> yeah. to push the start back. I like that the, the, the sanctity of soccer that this was so important it was in a way more important than the safety of the yeah. ho- these 
quote unquote hooligans. And, yeah. and the same thing for the people at the back rushing to get in so they don't miss a second. And and soccer itself is just so action packed and intense. It's not like too good baseball. of a sport. It's too good too of a good. <laughs> we don't deserve it. We can't we can't control ourselves. It is fun. I also was thinking, you know, man's hubris. Mm. Mm, classic. Mm, a yes. classic one. Um my, and my question is why didn't David Duckenfield just say, I think I'm over my head. I don't know football. I don't know how this works. I need help. I also want to talk about tonic immobility. Now, this is a word I've never heard. (laughs) Tonic immobility is a natural state of paralysis that animals enter, often called animal hypnosis. This is about fooling predators into leaving you alone, a strategy uh, strategy which is millions of years old. And that is exactly what happened to Duckenfield. According to witnesses that were with him, it was like something happened that he, he couldn't make a call. He waited wow. so long to do anything about the problem. No emergency response was ever put into play by Duckenfield. And on top of that, he had the uh, police stand in a line as a barrier to stop the other fans from coming into the field. Because really, they were most afraid of people coming onto the field and ruining their little soccer match. Yes. So that to me, that tonic immobility of like not knowing what to do when panic strikes, I think that we can all relate to it. Mm -hmm. It's something that has probably happened to us all. I, I, as a person, tend to fight. That's my... (laughs) Deer in the headlights syndrome, right? What do you do? I mean, do you have any others that you like? Well, the thing that I was going to add, which goes, which it's a nice little like mixer with that like tonic... Ooh. Um, immobility. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's this like uh, command structure. Ooh. So um, in some of the analysis that I'd read, there is a very strong hierarchical command structure where, you know, Mr. Uh, Duckworth. Duckenfield. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Duckenfieldworth was in charge of everything. And the idea is that his word, uh, which, you know, wasn't based on much, went. And right. so, for instance, there was five minutes, this like crushing happened over the course of like five minutes, and there was all sorts of opportunity for, for people to intervene. But then there's, there was not a like bureaucratic culture or structure where you could do that until it was too late. Okay, so yeah. let's, I, it, there always comes a time in every episode where we have to start crossing things and people off the list. So, Chris, will you walk us through what we currently have on the board? Yes. Duck and Field, South Yorkshire Police, No Corporate Mommy, <laughs> Hooliganism, Hillsborough Stadium Admin, Graham Kelly. Graham Kelly is the FA chief, the FA Football chief. Association gotcha. chief. Gotcha. The Sanctity of Soccer, Man's Hubris, Tonic Immobility, Rigid Command Structure. And, oh, I couldn't find the depa- the, um, the Minister of Sports. It's either Eldon Griffiths or Dennis Howell. Well, why don't we just put up the Minister of Sports and you know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) So right off the bat, what do you think we can take off? Because I'm having a hard time. (laughs) I have have a suggestion for what we should take off. I think in honor of the people who were killed in this disaster and the people who were so wrongly represented by the initial sort of outpouring of the press, I think we should take off hooliganism. 100%. We should should absolve the fans. Yeah. 
take that off. What else are you thinking, Pat? I know that you know I basically uh, generated this, okay. but just uh, for my own reputation, I'm going to take off No Corporate Mommy. Oh, yeah? Mm. Tell us why. I would say that obviously an absence of expertise plagued uh, this event mm-hmm. and, and and can explain this. but And you could come by expertise through a corporate structure specialization. Uh, you could come by other ways. Uh-huh. It's That's right. That's very fair. And I think in the spirit of the political season, I'm not going to... You know, tip my cards and and say that you can only have expertise through like this corporate structure. So I'm just going to say right. a little bit of expertise would have helped, but <laughs> I love that. Okay. All right. No corporate. You make a really good case. <laughs> I think we can take man's hubris off mm. as much as I don't want to, but because especially when you're talking about duck and fields just from the very little i know about him it doesn't seem like he had this ego and that was the reason it happened it seems more that he was inept and in over his head i mean but with that comes an ego if you can't back down if you can't be like i'm not the man for the job that there's ego involved in that isn't there that's true but it also could be more fear that's true Mm. yeah okay he's a man's hubris is out okay duck and field is in (laughs) Mm mm-hmm now, I do think that between Duck and Field and the South Yorkshire police, one of those should go. I think yeah. the, the police, because they are, you know, and this goes back to the rigid command structure. Um, I think they're taking orders from Duck and Field. A few of them were like radioing in and trying to, you know, solve the problem, but they couldn't do anything until they got the approval from Duck and Field. But go counterpoint. On. Yes. Who installed this Duckenfield? Mm-hmm. It wasn't Duckenfield himself. It wasn't it the police who <laughs> said, Mole's got to go. That's right. Because he did his little hijinks, which he didn't even do. Yeah. Listen, I'm the mole. <laughs> I'm, I'm Mole's mole on this podcast. So you're saying that uh, the police has to stay on there. So to me, the police and rigid command structure are almost one thing. There yeah. obviously were some issues going on here. So cut off. So should I uh, cut out rigid command structure? Uh, to me, you could absorb that into, yeah. the, into the Yorkshire police. police. Yeah. Yeah. Now, sanctity of soccer. What do you guys think? I don't know. The, to me, the sanctity of soccer puts out just as much good in the world as it does uh, bad. I'm fine with taking that off. I just want to say, PSA, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> I watch a lot of sports. They're really fun. I'm with you. It's not worth it. It's a game. It. It's, a, it's game. a game. Yeah, let's it's all the remember. It's semifinals, too. It wasn't the finals. <laughs> I think that we can take tonic and mobility out. We didn't get too much into like just the physics of these events. And like actually the the basis of like these happening these things happening is like this really kind of dynamic system we were talking about a little bit where you know like really far away something happens they have no idea what's going on they create this like it's like when that many people are close together they behave like a fluid Mm -hmm. so it creates like a ripple in a pond and then it just rips through uh, this this fluid of people and then. And then, you know, people literally don't have uh, room in their uh, lungs to breathe. So it's, it wasn't actually immobility that, that actually caused this. It was this active dynamic process. So I right. Think Jeez. I mean, fi- the, yeah, now you're getting into physics. Um, Sorry, man. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Molecular. But look, I, I think I still think that it was it was man-made. Like if there had been procedures that were effect like an effective structure of what to ha- yes. what would happen 
uh, it didn't it wouldn't have mattered if there was any kind of tonic immobility. Ooh. So I think the organization is more to blame than just the human uh, as that human aspect. Uh, the Ministry yeah. of Sports, I he think... He created we, those pens. I know. Ooh. I know, but the pens, it's like the pens were fine sometimes. It's the mismanagement yeah. and, and of the stadium that right. made it deadly. I agree. I'm, I'm going to push back just a little bit because I think to Pat's point from earlier, when you put people in pens, they start to act like people who belong in pens. Mm. And so I think that, that there's a whole police... Uh, fan dynamic where there's just an absence of sort of respect as mm-hmm. we see in how they described the massacre afterwards. I absolutely agree with you, but there were also games where this didn't happen. Uh, at this point, they had been in there for, what, five or six years? Yeah. I'm I'm with you guys. I'm going to take off the Minister of Sports, Alden Griffiths. He's off the hook. Okay, what did Graham Kelly do again? Graham Kelly was the one who picked that stadium, even though it didn't have a certificate. Mm. Okay, I, I think he's not as culpable as the, the police and the administration. Okay, he should have done his research. But uh, he's going off. He, he yeah he skates away. I mean, so because it, it, it wasn't really like the the architecture was the architecture wasn't to blame. It was like there are way too many people allowed in this space, and only ten turnstiles. Like they should have thought it through. Yeah, and were, that to me comes down to the operation of Hillsborough Stadium, which was what do we say the Sheffield Wednesday Football Club or whoever we have up on the board. We just for have that. Hillsborough Stadium admin. It's like them and the police to me are the two right. real contenders. Yeah, the bad boys. Can we narrow it down to that? It's gotta be Duck and Field. I mean, I think the theory of the case for me is that there are just way too many people in the stadium. It wasn't that like the stadium itself was was mm-hmm. any, was uh, Not inferior. Up to the, right. Uh, yeah, but the choice to do the the west and north stands. Oh, okay. But then, and, and assigning the Liverpool fans to that thing. So if it, if they'd switched, it would have been different. Yes. Oh. So oh, I forgot to read this. Hold on. This is really interesting. What everyone should have been more concerned about was the impact that the allocation and segregation would have uh, would have on the turnstile configuration. Hillsborough had eighty three turnstiles in nineteen eighty nine. Every single one would have been. For an event with a capacity crowd, uh, would have been used for an event with a capacity crowd of 54,000. But with a myopic focus on segregation at all costs, the club, in full view of the police, in full view of the police, Mm -hmm. divided the number of turnstiles so that Nottingham Forest fans had 60, that's 72% of the total means of entry, whilst Liverpool fans had only 23, that's 28%. Even worse, all 24,256 Liverpool ticket holders were required to enter the ground at Leppings Lane. So they all had to go through the same entrance. And it's both of them. Don't you think it's the administration and the, the police? police. I, I think we have to send them both. I, I, I just wouldn't feel good letting the administration go on this. Oh, that's a big piece of evidence right there. I think I want to give the big slap to Duckenfield because as a person in charge, even though we're sending the police to... Yeah. To, to the jail. I feel like as a person in charge, he deserves, oh man, just a huge slap. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine <laughs> okay. with that. Call it. Okay. Duckenfield, you've got the big slap. Nice. South Yorkshire Police and the Hillsborough Stadium Administration, you're going to the alarmist jail. That was really tough. Way harder than I thought it would be. I, I thought it was going to be just a given that the police were going to go. 
or duck and field. Well, that's why you have the trial. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Pat, thank you so much for joining us. This is as fun as it should have been. (laughs) That could mean anything. (laughs) Has there ever been a better review? (laughs) When you walk through a storm After the Hillsborough Stadium disaster... The family's campaign for 27 years for the truth, despite lies told by senior officers, slurs in national newspapers, and an alleged police cover-up to deflect blame on the supporters. On June 28, 2017, Britain's Crown Prosecution Service announces that it has charged six people, including Duckinfield, with criminal offenses related to the disaster. On November 28, 2019, Duckinfield is found not guilty of gross negligence manslaughter. The Taylor report that came out after the disaster recommended that all major stadiums convert to an all-seater model and that all ticketed spectators should have seats as opposed to some or all being obliged to stand. By the disaster's 10th anniversary in 1999, at least three people who survived were known to have died by suicide. Another survivor had spent eight years in psychiatric care. There were cases of alcoholism, drug abuse, and collapsed marriages involving people who had witnessed the events. The lingering effects of the disaster were seen as a cause or contributory factor in all of these. is to blame by going to thealarmistpodcast.com. Follow us at the Alarmist the on Twitter, at the Alarmist Podcast on Instagram, or email us at thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Tune in next week as we'll be discussing the Astor Place riots. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.